you have your copy of God's Word, I'd love for you to turn to the book of Mark as we continue progressing through that glorious gospel of Jesus Christ. Mark chapter 9, we'll be looking at verses 42 through 50 this morning. These are some difficult verses when we read them. These are some verses we kind of scratch our head and wonder what in the world is Jesus talking about. Well, I'm going to try to explain that to you this morning. <laughs> um, as in, in the context of the book, as Jesus is moving closer and closer to his crucifixion and moving to Jerusalem, and, and he spends a lot more intensified time teaching his disciples, teaching them what it means to be a disciple, what true discipleship for his followers means. Sometimes we want to say that the disciples were called to another level of Christianity, but that's not true. They were given special opportunities and sometimes abilities as apostles once Christ had ascended into heaven, but that was after this. He's teaching them this, and he's teaching us this as well. Now, I've got to make a, an editorial note here. In, in chapter 9, verses 42 through 50, some translations, the Christian Standard Bible, which I'm using this morning, drop out two verses, verses 44 and 46. The reason they drop those out is because those verses are not in the most reliable and earliest manuscripts. So these were added in by somebody scribing these out. Remember, they didn't have photocopiers back in the early A.D. time frame. So someone was copying these, and what they did is they took verse 48, and they added it in, and that became verse 44 and 46 in the King James Version of the Bible. And so that's why they just dropped the verse numbers and omit them because the King James was already numbered. I can explain more to you about that, but the oldest and best Greek manuscripts do not have this that, those two verses in there, but they do have verse 48, which covers the whole passage. So just an editorial note, when we get there and you go, where'd verse 44 go? You now know. But, you know, I've been preaching for several weeks about the call of a disciple, the call of living out our faith. It's, uh, it's, it sometimes sounds like I'm, I'm, I'm beating on the same anvil, but I want you to understand something, and I think Jesus wants us to understand this. Believers are called. Believers are expected Believers are exhorted to live out their faith, to live out their faith in Jesus Christ, in, in Jesus' ways, not our own ideas. And so grace that Jesus gives us by his death on the cross allows us the freedom to do this, the freedom that if we fail, we have forgiveness, but we try not to fail. That's what he's really calling us to, and that's what these passages this morning are really talking about, because the alternative is not very nice. Listen to what Jesus says here, starting with verse 42. But whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to fall away, it would be better if for him if a heavy millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. And if your hand causes you to fall away, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life maimed than to have two hands and go to hell, the unquenchable fire. And if your foot causes you to fall away, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life lame than to have two feet and be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to fall away, gouge it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than to have two eyes and be thrown into hell, where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. 
for everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good, but if the salt should lose its flavor, how can you season it? Have salt among yourselves and be at peace with one another. Let me pray. Father, we just thank you for this passage and sometimes it, it wrinkles our sensitivities and it, it causes us to pause and wonder what is he really saying to us and, and does he really mean what we literally could take this verse to mean. Well, I thank you for your Holy Spirit that gives us insight and I thank you for the rest of your word that gives us interpretive clues that we may understand this passage better. So guide us this morning in Jesus' name. Amen. So I titled this sermon, The Purification of Our Faith. And that's what Jesus is talking about. He's talking about trying to purify your faith, to make it better. And I'm going to talk about this. Jesus, he's radically highlighting how a follower must live out their faith in him. He's radically highlighting that. Our faith in Jesus Christ calls us from existing in darkness, which is where we were, to moving into more and more of the light of his truth. So how will Jesus bring us into maturity in his truth? Well, he points out two ways, two ways to move our faith toward maturity. Two ways to move our faith toward maturity. First, radically, radically avoid sinfulness. Radically avoid sinful tendencies. Number one, Jesus condemns toying with sin. Verses 42 through 48. Jesus condemns us toying with sin. Toying with sin can come in a couple of ways. In verse 42, let me read that one for you again because he talks about toying with sin in this way. But whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to fall away, it, sh it would be better for him to if a heavy millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. Wow, that's pretty, uh, pretty aggressive, isn't it? Well, <clears throat> let, me t let me kind of explain this. Jesus speaks of leading little ones away, leading little ones to stumble, leading little ones to, to sin is what they're really talking about here. And he does this several times in Scripture. So what does this really mean? Well, like I said, first of all, the little ones here does not mean children. It does not mean children. Although I know a lot of people have interpreted it that way. Little ones mean those who believe in Jesus Christ. Those who have trusted Jesus with their heart, soul, mind, and strength. They have trusted him for the salvation of their souls. And so these, Jesus is referring back to, up in verses 40 and 41, he's referring back to the guy who was casting out demons in the name of Jesus, and, and they tried to stop him. He said, don't, don't interrupt him. Don't cause him to sin. He's doing what I've called him to do. And then, if anyone gives you a glass of water in my name, he's serving me. Don't stop them. Don't hinder them. Don't make them fall away. So that's who he's referring to. These trusting little souls, Jesus is calling us as believers in Christ to protect. To protect them. To not entice them away. To not cause them to stumble. To not hinder them in any way, shape, or form. Because sin is the culprit that Jesus is trying to stomp out. He desires us to abolish. He desires us to lose all of our self-made temptations here to, to, to sin. And he says, don't lead others astray. Don't cause them to stumble. Don't cause them to fall away in sin. He, he's so serious about this. Listen, he says, he says, death is better for someone who does that than life. It's better for you to have a millstone hung around your neck and thrown into the sea and drown than it is for you to stay here on planet earth and lead others to disobedience. That's pretty heavy stuff. 
I don't think Jesus, Jesus is kidding around very much about that. One thing we can get from this, we are our Christian brothers and sisters keeper. We're meant to be here to help each other and encourage each other and to not cause each other to sin. We're meant to do that. But another way we toy with sin is in verses 43 through 48. Verses 43 through 48. Let me read it. And if your hand, if your hand causes you to fall away or sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life maimed than to have two hands and go to hell, the unquenchable fire. And if your foot causes you to fall away, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life lame than to have two feet and be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to fall away, gouge it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than to have two eyes and be thrown into hell where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. Jesus is condemning sin in us too. I mean, this is speaking right to us. If you're having trouble with sin, you need to get away from it. Don't toy with it. Don't flirt with it. Don't tease with it. Don't tempt yourself with it. Don't let it hang around. Things that are leading you to sin. Jesus gives three examples of how we can avoid toying with sin and what our attitude should be about it. And Jesus is... Just to put you at ease a little bit, Jesus is using some exaggerated measures here. It's called hyperbole. It's meant to make a point. He's not expecting you to cut your hands off, okay? I'll talk about that in a minute. But our hands, our hands point to the deeds we do. Most of the things we do in life, our hands are involved in it in some way, shape, or form. We commit violation of God's words with our hands all the time. Our feet, our feet take us to places we shouldn't go. Not, and I'm not talking just honky-tonks in other places. I'm talking any place that where we go and we, we find ourselves sinning. And then our eyes. The eyes are the windows to the soul, right? What we take in with our eyes causes us more sin than you can realize. What we see, what we lust after, what we desire that violates God's design. You remember the little kid's song? It's really not a little kid's song. It's, a, it's an adult, the kids, it's everybody's song. Be careful, little eyes, what you see. Be careful, little feet, where you go. Be careful, little hands, what you do. For the Father up above is looking down in love. Oh, be careful where you go. So Jesus is using that. And he says he calls us to take drastic, radical action to resist these sins in our lives. Now, he's not talking about self-mutilation. He's not talking about self-inflicted physical punishment. You may feel like you're being physical punished when you stay away from these sins for a time, but <clears throat> these things wouldn't help. Honestly, if I cut off my left hand that was causing me to sin, my right hand would learn how to do the same sin. It wouldn't hesitate. If I walk somewhere with both feet and I cut off one of my feet, I'll hobble to that place again. I'll hobble there. Because here's the, here's the truth, and I'm going to take a, a moment to talk about a refresher here on sin. Sin is an internal condition manifested in external displays. Sin starts right here. Right here. It doesn't start with your hand or your foot or your eye. It starts right here. Jesus said this in Mark 7, 21 through 23. We already talked about it, but he said, the things that are sin come out of us. They don't go into us first. Jesus said all sin begins and proceeds from the heart. Our hearts are messed up. 
Our hearts are wrong. Our hearts need changing. Unrepentant sinning reveals that their heart is wrong and needs a radical correction. And Jesus encourages radical changes to avoid it. That's why he's using this pretty dramatic language. Cut it off, poke it out, get rid of it, get away from it. Jesus wants us to pursue holiness. That's where he's after. It's not just about don'ts. It's about doing. Pursue holiness. Pursue righteousness. Because you know what? Our forgiveness is not cheap. The forgiveness that we have in Jesus Christ is not cheap. It cost the Son of God his life. It was a high price, and he paid it. So if we are not willing to correct it, to eliminate the temptations... To, to rein in our hearts, because our hearts are so easily led astray, we are most likely hellbound. That's what Jesus is saying. If you're not willing to, to take these kind of steps where you're willing to get rid of the sin in your heart, you might be bound for hell. Jesus emphatically tells us that toying with sin, that tinkering with it, that relishing it in our hearts is the path to hell. And if a heart... If any heart is not pursuing righteousness in Christ, he is not, Jesus is not saying they've lost their salvation. He's saying they never had it. They never were Christians. They never were true believers. If they're pursuing this persistently, they're, they're not repenting and seeking Christ's forgiveness and, and Christ's help to do better. Persistent impertinence. That's what I would call this. If you are persistently impertinent toward God, it will be an indication that Jesus has not changed your heart. But that leaves hope, because there's always hope that Jesus will change your heart. Persistent impertinence toward God will be an indication that Jesus has not changed your heart. And that's where salvation begins, is in the heart. Because you've got to take care of the source of sin first. Because hell is the destination of an unrepentant heart. Hell is the destination of disobedient hearts. What is hell? Well, we hear that word a lot, and I'm sure we all have a pretty good understanding. But I want to explain a little bit. I want to help you kind of see what Jesus is saying hell is. And, uh, and I get very few chances to preach about hell, so I'm going to talk about it a little bit. The word in Greek that you see there in, the, in your English text, the word in Greek for hell is Gehenna. Gehenna is a Hebrew word that was taken from the Old Testament and translated or transliterated straight into Greek. And it's Gehenna. It's a place. It's an actual physical place in the Old Testament. It's an evil place. You know where it was? It was in a valley south of Jerusalem, just down the hill from where the temple was. It was a valley where they went and burned their children for the god Molech. They put them in a fire, burned them up. They sacrificed them to this false god. King Ahaz did it. King Manasseh did it. And the people brought their kids there. And, and it, it was a fire that didn't go out because they constantly were down there sacrificing their children to this false god. And it was a god from, I think, the Ammonites that they had defeated when they took the promised land, but they let, let the god hang around. The fires burned constantly. Well, eventually, when Manasseh reformed and did away with the place and several other kings came in and did away with it, <clears throat> it became a garbage dump. It became a place where they put refuge and burned it. Burned it up. And 
the fire just burned all the time then too, and it never went out. It was a garbage dump, and the fire in hell never goes out. So Jesus is giving you a, a, a visual picture, at least he's giving these Jews who know where Gehenna is, which is just down the hill from Jerusalem. He's giving them a picture of what fire is and, and what hell is, and hell is where the fire never goes out. Jesus finishes this passage, this section here, with Isaiah 66, 24. That is a quote from the Old Testament. That is the last verse in the book of Isaiah. The worm does not die, and the fire is not quenched. And Jesus is telling you that that's talking about hell. Now, in the context of Isaiah, it's talking about the victory fires of their enemies burning their people as they proceed out of their country and exiled to the, to the enemy's country. Hell is a place where torment never ceases. That's not a scare tactic. That's a fact. That's the truth. Hell is a real place. Hell is where God condemns those who refuse to believe in his son, who refuse to believe in his son and seek the forgiveness that's in Jesus Christ. That's where hell is. That's what hell is for. And Jesus strongly condemns any toying with our sin. And he says, you continue to toy and act unrepentant towards sin, that's where you're going. Because you're not saved. Your heart's not right with God. Hell is a real place, regardless of what the world wants to tell you to do about it. It is a real place. So, Jesus condemns any toying with heaven. Now, one illustration of this happening, David toyed with adultery with Bathsheba. He shouldn't have been on that rooftop looking down at her. He should have been out with his army. That's where he was supposed to be, but he wasn't there. Solomon, the greatest king, wisest man to ever live, he toyed with sin by building shrines and idols for his wives, his foreign wives who wanted to worship their God. And it drug him away. Sometimes recovering drug addicts toy with their sin by continuing to try to be friends with people who got them into the drug culture. And my best piece of advice for them is to throw your phone away, throw the contacts away, get new friends. And you can start right here. We'll, we'll be your friend. We'll help you. Judas. <laughs> Judas. Judas followed Jesus physically. Judas was everywhere. Jesus, Judas even had his feet washed by the Son of God. But he didn't follow Jesus. He toyed with sin. He toyed with greed. He toyed with having prestige with the Jewish leaders. He betrayed Jesus. And he went to hell for it. See, sin is an individual thing. It's not something... That we're, that's put on us. It's something that comes from inside us. Sin is an individual thing that we must constantly seek to suppress. James describes it this way, but each one, each one is tempted when he is carried away by his lust and his desires. And when his lust and desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is full grown, gives birth to death, which is what Jesus is talking about, spiritual and eternal death. Sin is an individual thing. So let's get two lessons out of this particular part of the passage this morning. One, your actions, your attitudes, your words can push or lead others to wrong conclusions about God. Therefore, sin. You can intentionally, or even sometimes accidentally, because you're being careless, accidentally cause a new believer or an immature Christian to sin. 
Now, you're not physically making them sin. Like I said, sin starts on the inside. But you're not helping them. Our attention must be on our behavior to prevent misleading or confusing other believers. Once you become a follower of Jesus Christ, you have a responsibility to live according to Jesus' ways. And they're right here in this book. All you got to do is read them. Jesus says physical death for us is better than us to be a stumbling block to our brothers and sisters in Christ. He says, it's it just soon you die and go to heaven now as opposed to sticking around and causing other peoples to fall. This even includes calling things sins that aren't sins, but that's another whole sermon. So let's be good stewards of the treasures in our Bible and know how to behave so we don't lead people astray. Let's lead and live biblical lifestyles to avoid that tragedy. The other lesson we can learn from this is that our sins need to be addressed with whatever means necessary to rid our hearts of them. You're not going to do it by cutting off your hands or your feet or plucking out your eye. That's, but it, you've got to find the way to get those sins out of your heart, to get those tendencies out of your life. Avoiding the temptations, avoiding the places, avoiding the sites where sinful desires begin to start and give birth to sin. Remember, the heart is the real culprit here. So stop feeding the sin. Stop giving it ideas. Stop giving it place in your life. Stop doing it. I mean, it's, I make it sound real simple, and it's not. It's not easy to stop some of those habits. But what you can do is start resisting them. That's how it starts. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you, James writes in his, uh, his letter. Start resisting the sins, the temptations. Claim Christ's victory over it. He won the victory over sin. You don't have to be subject to it. There's no such thing as I can't in Jesus Christ. There's I will. I will trust Christ and I will overcome this. I will continue to fight it. See, hell is the future for a heart that doesn't resist evil. Because a heart that runs to evil willingly is not a born-again heart. If you're running there willingly with no care or concern for your salvation, no care or concern for Jesus Christ, you're not born again. Hell is the future of the hand, the foot, or the eye that does not look to God, but to their own pleasures. And that's generally what gets us in the most trouble in our hearts, is looking for our own pleasures, our own satisfactions. We need to be doing, we need to be going, we need to be seeing the world as Jesus sees the world, with his perspective. That's the fruit of a life that's saved. So are you toying with sins this morning, this week? Have you been toying with sins? Is there one particular one you keep kind of getting caught up in? Do you find yourself intentionally disobeying God? Well, stop and ask God to forgive you and to help you, to help you resist. I have to do it every week. <laughs> it's not something that you ever get above in this life. Feed your soul with the truth. That's one way you can change. That's one way you can win this battle. Feed your soul with the truth. Real transformation comes from God's holy word, prayer, and worship. Remembering who is God and that you owe him big time for your salvation. So be sure of your salvation by being repentant in your life. That's one way you can make sure I'm saved. I'm, I'm constantly reminding myself to for, ask for forgiveness, to repent, to seek to live for Jesus in all of my life. Just avoid toying with sin. That'll give you some assurance. 
if you're having doubts about your faith. So Jesus, he condemns it, condemns toying with your sin. Jesus warns sternly against sinful flirtations because he wants our life to influence the world. He wants our lives to influence the world. Number two this morning, Jesus commands a salted life. Not a salty life. Don't get, don't get carried away with that terminology. Salted life. Verses 49 through 50. Let me read that for you again. For everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good. But if the salt should lose its flavor, how can you season it? Have salt among yourselves and be at peace with one another. So, this verse, verse 49 at least, has been sort of confusing to a lot of scholars over the years. Um, and I'm not saying I've got the right answer, but I think it's a combination of a couple of the, their points. First of all, salt and fire. These are two components and two means of the sacrifices from the Old Testament. Every sacrifice was salted before it was burned up on the altar. Leviticus 2.13. It was, it was salted. It, salt was included in every sacrifice. So salt and fire, and that, those sacrifices, who do they point to? They point to Jesus. They all point to Jesus. So by Christ's sacrifice, believers can sacrifice our lives by living for him. We can live out righteousness every day by living out the sacrifice that Christ has given us. But then you say, but that's, not, that's just believers. I say, yeah, it does say everyone, right? Verse 49 for everyone will be salted with fire. So let's talk about that. So what about the unbeliever? If he's saying everyone, he's probably talking about the unbeliever too. God intends, here's the truth that you need to hang on to, God intends for all humanity to face judgment. And it will happen. All of us will face judgment. And it will be a salting of judgment fire. I think they're using salted here as a kind of a, a verb more than an actual product in, in this particular verse. The salting by fire of a believer, what does it do for us? It refines us. It refines us. It makes our faith pure. Makes it better. It brightens it. And Paul kind of talks about this in 1 Corinthians 3.13 when he talks about the fact that whatever we do needs to be founded on Christ because one day our works, our deeds, our actions as Christians will be tested by fire at the judgment seat. And if it's gold and silver and stone, it might survive the fire. But if it's wood, hay, or stubble, it's going to get burned up. So our, our lives and our works are going to be tested by fire one day. The salting of fire on a non-believer, what is a non-believer? What does that mean? Well, it, it just confirms. When they, when they meet the judgment fire, it confirms that they had no faith. It confirms that they had no salvation in their souls. Their works and life had no eternal value. They go to hell. That's what salting by fire of a non-believer will result in at the end. So that's, the first, that's verse 49. In verse 50, Jesus kind of begins teaching about salt. He turns to the teaching and says, lives to, our lives are to be salt in a decaying, tasteless, and, and damned world. Our lives are to be like salt. Now, salt today is better refined than in Jesus' day. In Jesus' day, salt was gleaned from the Dead Sea and other places, and sometimes it had gypsum in it. Sometimes it had some other mineral in it, and so it could decay. It could break down and not be salty. But sodium chloride today never breaks down. That's why it rusts your car out and everything else. It's pretty tenacious. But back then, it was polluted. 
And so it could lose its salt. And so once the salt is useless, it's thrown out. It has no, no value. Once our faith is polluted by the world's stuff, it's useless. And we need to fight and be careful to make sure our lives are pure salt. Jesus commands them to have faith like pure salt, like no corruption. Faith that, that denies their own ideas, that takes up their cross and follows Jesus. That's what kind of faith he's calling them to have. That's salt faith. You know, and salt causes tension sometimes. You know, I, when you put it in a wound, it really hurts, you know. But, but when it causes tension in this world, the peace of God is there to remind you that it doesn't matter what the world says about you. It really doesn't. If you're living for Christ, your soul is secure. You're going to heaven. Have peace about it. Peace of God is good for the kingdom because the salt is good for the kingdom of God. So Jesus orders a very healthy dose of salt. I know some of you with blood pressure issues are wondering about that, but salt, in a metaphorical way, he orders a healthy dose of salt in his believers, in his disciples, because we can change the world for better if we're salt. Fire and salt, those two things are meant to improve items. You know, gold in the ore is worthless. That rock that has gold in it, it's worthless. can't use gold that's in the rock. What do you got to do to get it out? Burn it. Burn off the rock, and the gold comes out pure, shiny, and useful, and very valuable. What about salt? Food, meat, even bodily functions don't work right without salt. Ever had low sodium or low salt in your life? Man, it, it'll really wreck your, your bio, biology there. So salt improves. Salt preserves. And our faith is meant to be purified by fire and influential like salt. That's what our lives, our faith is meant to do. He didn't give it to you to just sit on it. He didn't give it to you for fire insurance to get you out of hell. He gave it to you to use. And he'll bring that fire and he'll bring that salt into your life to refine you. He, he tells the Israelites in Isaiah 48.10, Behold, I have refined you, but not as silver. I have tested you in the furnace of affliction. The furnace of affliction. Now, I've said before from this pulpit that things that happen in your life are meant to test your faith and refine it. Make it stronger. Make it better. Make it brighter. Make you live more according to Jesus' life. And that's all he's saying to the Israelites. The fire and furnace of affliction is meant to make you better. Not to get you down, not to wear you out, although it is tiring sometimes, but it's meant to make us better. A salted life comes from a heart that does not toy with sin. That's why these two passages are together like this. A salted life comes from a heart that doesn't toy with sin, that doesn't play around with it, but obeys Jesus at every turn looking to obey Jesus. I know none of us are perfect, so don't go away from here saying you have to be perfect. See, the grace that saves us, up to that point, you can't do anything for your relationship with God Almighty. Grace is all the help, need, you, help you need. But once God saves your soul, the grace he pours on you, he now gives you that grace to live for him. Now we got stuff to do. Now we got something we can begin to work on. Once he's saved us, we need to live a salted, sin-resisting life because that's what he calls us to do. By that same grace, our heart is new with a desire to live for God. It is a life of gratitude 
for the forgiveness of our sins. Are you living in gratitude? Are you living grateful for the sins that he has forgiven? Like I said, our sins are forgiven by the grace of Jesus Christ when we believe in him. But God expects us to commit less sins. He expects us to. And that is the purification of our souls by testing. We have another word for that in theological circles. We call it sanctification. I know it's a 50-cent word. Use it on your friends and impress them. But sanctification is simply the idea of setting apart, of setting apart as something special, something holy. And that is what's going on every day in your life. You are being sanctified by Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit. Those things that are happening, it's an already done thing because you're sanctified in God's eyes to get into heaven. So the thief on the cross, when he said, I believe in you, he went to heaven like that. When he died, he didn't have time for this life of sanctification that we have. That's called progressive sanctification. But it's an already done, like for the thief, but it's a not yet complete till we go to heaven. And that's why we have the, the processes we do down here. God forgives us and then gives us a new life to live. God doesn't forgive you to live the same life. That's, that's not going to be any good. He doesn't do that. He leaves us here to live for him and for our lives to salt humanity out there, to salt them with the truth about Jesus Christ. Not to just be salty to people, okay? That's not what I'm talking about here. He wants, us to, be, he wants to use us to glorify him. That's what God wants to do. He wants us to bring glory to his name. Jesus said that. Do good works so that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. Everything we do good in the name of Jesus Christ is meant to glorify God. And God will get glory for it one day. We need to show them and the world by our salted life that there's a better way to live. This better life in eternity than what they're going to have here. If our faith loses its saltiness, it's useless. We are not preserving the world. We're not improving the world. We're not influencing the world. If our faith has lost its saltiness. Having a salty faith means living our lives in submission and commitment to Jesus. Again, it means denying ourselves, taking up our cross, and following him. I think Jesus said that earlier in chapter 8. <clears throat> Jesus commands us to be salt, to be salt and light in one place, to preserve, to influence, to improve, to enhance life in the world that we live in by our purity and holiness, by not toying with, toying with sins and living righteous. And the peace of God allows us to not lose heart or grow weary when life gets tough, when the testing is long, or when we fail, we have peace that our souls are still forgiven and we can try again. Peace like a river. Grace and peace in our lives produces hope and security for those who are, are living there. We carry our crosses and we point to Jesus in every aspect of our life. And that's how we live a salted life. So as I, I summarize here, Jesus tells us to seek a purified faith. He's, he's calling us to purify our faith, to seek ways to do that. A faith that's refined with salt and fire that people can see and give glory to God. That's what he's called us to do. And, and Jesus uses these two methods here as examples to lead us to utilize our lives for the kingdom. See, the kingdom of God is here. Jesus is, Jesus is preaching it there 2,000 years ago. So it's still here. The kingdom of God is at hand. So we're living in that kingdom. So first, get rid of all the moral filth and the evil that's corrupting you. 
Don't let sin hang around or influence you. And if you commit a sin, don't let it hang around to guilt you. Confess it. Repent of it. Ask God to forgive you and move on and try not to do it again. That's, that's our life. That's what we're here to do. Make living right a priority. Do what the Bible says with the right motives. Remember, it goes back to the heart. That's where sin starts. And the second thing he says here is that your faith is like a piece of fine gold. And the more it's refined, the brighter it gets. It's valuable. It's useful to the master and prepared to do any good work. That's what we're called to do. So your deeds, your efforts, and your obedience will be like salt to those around you. They will be helpful. They will be helpful. The world needs more of God's truth and love. It does. It needs more of it. And it needs us to be the messengers of it. We are the ones who can bring it, who have confessed faith in Jesus Christ. So start today doing that. Live like we've received the mercy that we sang about earlier. Let's have a time of prayer, pastoral prayer, where you just talk to God about these things. Maybe there's some sins that you've been toying with. Maybe you haven't been as salted as you want to be, need to be. Maybe God is putting you through the fire of affliction for some refinement. Let's take some time and privately and silently pray over those things. If you'd like to come to the front and pray, please feel free to do that. We'll pray for a minute or so, and then I'll close us out. Let's pray.